In association with the Omniverse Comics Guide, this is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from all over the world. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 297. time i saw you you might have had dark hair the last I let, time I you just saw me. Let, you know let my hair go it looks great yeah it's it, i just got tired of you know doing it so i i let it go to see how it's going everybody seems to think it looks okay so no it looks it looks just fine how, how have you been it's been about a year since we've last spoke uh it's great to have you back on again how have you been doing this past year uh i've been doing okay i mean i think we're still kind of in the throes of COVID and that's kind of slowed some of the things down that I do. I'm working on a new documentary and, you know, making those interviews happen and getting people comfortable enough to go someplace and talk without having to have, you know, full surgical gear on, uh, you know, it's been a bit of a challenge. Yeah. But your Uh, health and everything has been okay otherwise. Oh, yeah, I'm about the only person I know in my, my immediate group of friends who hasn't had COVID. That that you know of or you know for sure you haven't had it? Um, I'm pretty sure that I haven't had it because I haven't been sick in the way one would be sick if they had COVID. Good. That's great to hear. I'm happy about no, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not overly paranoid about it. You know, I don't want to make this pop cultural uh, conversation no. about uh, what's wrong with the world, but... You know, I've tried to be smart about it, you know, and then I think the other part of it is I think sometimes you're just lucky. Yeah. Not to not to get it. Yeah. But anyway, I've been doing pretty well. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing a lot of and I, I you know, it helped it helped make the time go by during the height of COVID was I've done a lot of commentary tracks for Blu-rays. That's, you know, in addition to my my comics history and my mm-hmm. filmmaking history, uh, my writing history, I, I'm a film historian, and I've done a, uh, I would say almost literally a ton of commentary since the last last time we talked, well, or just since COVID, I've been because you can do them remotely. Right, right. So where could people f- find the com? Are they on the DVD sets that or there were, you know they're on the blue they're on Blu-rays um, like this year. This year I've been very lucky. I did. Uh, uh, I usually work with somebody else because it's just too hard to talk for two hmm. hours by yourself. Even though people would think that it would be not a, would not be a problem for me. <laughs> but uh, uh, Steve Rubin and I did The Great Escape earlier this year. Okay. Nathaniel Thompson and I did In the Heat of the Night. Um, just did Escape from Alcatraz with Nathaniel. Uh, an interesting. And this is going to sound pretentious, but it's a policier, an American policier called Warning Shot with David Jansen, which is a movie that I find very interesting because it literally was made right on the cusp of the end of old Hollywood and the beginning of new Hollywood. I think I talk about it on the track. I say, you know, all the hippies was the 16 millimeter cameras and the bell bottoms and the, you know, the boots and everything and the hair were literally around the corner. I mean, Easy Rider and all of those movies game-changing movies were about a year away and then warning shot is really kind of old school but politically speaking it's it had some you know more new school ideas of the time so that's pretty good what what else have i done this year did a couple of french crime movies and i can never remember the titles on those 
Um, and I'm getting ready to do, I got a, I got a number coming up in the, you know, in the course of this month and in September. Um, oh, probably going to do Hell is for Heroes, the Steve McQueen World War II picture directed by Don Siegel, which I really, really like. So, you know, it's been kind of a good year for me because I've been, you know, it's, I, f I can find a way to talk about a movie that's not a favorite, but is interesting. But when you're talking about a movie that's like a favorite of yours, mm -hmm. I don't know, it just maybe an extra couple of notches of enthusiasm sure. kick into the game. So, um, but it's, it's fun to do. And one of the things that I like to do, it's weird. You live your life and you have these sort of signposts. And for me, I remember stuff from the 70s because I was younger. <laughs> and um, But those were significant years for me as, as a moviegoer and a, and a guy who was learning about film and, and absorbing everything like a sponge. And I grew up in New York City, and so a lot of that stuff was in New York. And the context of a movie sometimes is almost as interesting as the movie. For example... Um, I'm sure you've seen Dirty Harry or most of your listeners, viewers have seen Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry, which is with, without question a classic, it's probably Clint Eastwood's best picture. It's arguably Don Siegel's best picture. And, and the arguably is probably more prominent with that. It's a great cop movie and it was very significant of a sort of time in the film business. But what people don't know is it was excoriated for the most part by the critics. Hmm. You know, most critics have a tendency to be very liberal, and I have no problem with that. Um, and Dirty Harry is really kind of, I would say, right-wingish. Some people called it fascistic. I don't think it's a fascist movie, but I think it's just a great movie with a great hero and a great villain. You know, when you take all the other stuff out, that's really what's still there when you watch it. So... At the time of the film, all the critics just kind of hated it, except for one guy, Jay Cox, who was the, the critic for the New York, for not, no, not for the Times, for Time Magazine. And he put it on his 10 best list. Well, you know, history has proven that Jay was kind of right and everybody else, you know, couldn't get out of their own way about that movie. And I'm sure if you go to any critic who's been around for a long time and said, okay, what do you think about Dirty Harry? They'd probably say it's great. Right, right. It's something you'll probably study as far as a character performance, all kinds of things. Do you think yeah. that, that just going back to what you said about the, the critics at the time, do you think that sometimes the people's politics can get in the way of whatever the art might be, or do you think they should go hand in hand? Because I feel today it's almost, it's too much where, can we just get story again? Can we appreciate well, I, something for what it is, even if it's not your preference well i sort of i know where you're going with this and i and and i think today is very supercharged with the politics the you know social politics actual politics gender politics of the time yeah and and movies i think reflect the times that they're made in mm -hmm. but i think a lot of people especially in the world that we live in with social media especially you know god forbid you you sit down and have dinner and you use the wrong fork to eat your salad. Right. It, that, that becomes almost this overblown kind of, you know, crime of manners. 
And and I think every every decade has its has its thing. And you know, the seventies, especially the early seventies when Harry was released, things were changing politically, sexually, mm-hmm. socially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things about about Harry, he doesn't Mirandize Scorpio in in the stadium after he shoots him. And so the whole you know Miranda rights thing was a big deal, uh, which I'm I'm assuming in Canada you have something similar where yeah. you know you know uh, you know anything that you can be used against you et cetera et cetera. Right. So yeah, it was somewhat political at the time, but people let politics get in the way of whether or not it's a good story. And we talked about in the other podcasts. I said the most special effect of all for audiences are great characters. Yeah. And now I will expand on that. I, the most special effect of all for audience today are great characters played by interesting actors. Mm. Now, we don't have as many interesting actors, I think, today. And we don't have as many really great movie stars. I mean, you know, when, when I watch older Clint movies, I just watched uh, the 4K of uh, For a Few Dollars more recently. And I'm so used to seeing Clint old I forget almost what Clint is like when he was young and you just go, oh, my God, look at this guy. He's such a movie star. He was more of a movie star than he was as an actor. I think he became better as an actor over the years because he developed craft. But Clint was an incredibly instinctive or instinctual movie star. And we don't have those guys anymore for the most part. And so, you know, movies, there's a different context to older movies as well because – you know, Hollywood permeates everything that gets made unless you're really out there making really independent type product. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, if you're looking at Hollywood movies, Hollywood did offer up some great things. And, and one of the things they offered up the most of were movie stars. Mm. Yeah. You know, I just recently watched a, an insanely beautiful Blu-ray of, you know, uh, the, uh, the Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn. I hadn't seen an Errol Flynn movie in a while. I'm going, oh, my God, look at this guy. You know, he's a movie star when he's sleeping. Right. You know, he can't he's help just, it. He, yeah, he can't, he can't help it. He has such power. And so what happens is we, come, we forget about this stuff. When I grew up, mm-hmm. I was still experiencing the star system because I watched movies on television. Right. You know, all the movies my dad saw in the theater, I was watching on television, oftentimes with my dad. And and I learned the value of a movie star. Great actors are great actors. I will not take that away from anybody. But that doesn't mean you're a movie star. Right. Okay. I, I, I and these are things that. that I like to talk about in some of my tracks. No, I, I love this type of conversation because it's um, – I like talking to people who know more about things that – other people think I know a lot about and I know nothing in comparison to the people I talk to, which is why I, I enjoy talking to creators such as yourself. For those who have listened to us preamble for 11 minutes, I'm talking to Steve Mitchell, an award-winning director of a documentary called King Cohen about director Larry Cohen. So if someone knows about movies movies and can call themselves a historian, it's Steve Mitchell. So... Um, watching Larry Cohen, what made you a, a Larry Cohen fan for you to want to make that documentary? Just jumping somewhere else right now. Well, I think I was a fan before I thought of it. Okay. You know, I discovered Larry again in the seventies and I think the first movie of his that really landed for me radar wise was, was it's alive. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, It's Alive is a movie that is just nuts. <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's bad. In fact, all of Larry's movies have ideas in them. And even when Larry was doing television, and I knew Larry's name from TV in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, there are shows I'd see in reruns, and I, you know, I, I've always been a credits junkie. And, you know, I keep seeing this name, Larry Cohen, Larry Cohen, Larry Cohen. And then Larry started to direct his own movies in the early 70s, again, when things were changing, because he wanted control. One of the things about Larry is Larry... Larry was cheap. Sorry, Larry, you were cheap. <laughs> you know, I, anytime I talk about Larry, I think Larry's watching and hovering over me, and he's, he's going, what are you talking about? That's my bad Larry Cohen impersonation. Um, but I think Larry is cheap, but Larry wanted to control the process. That's why he wrote, produced, and directed. You know, when, And I think we talked about this last time. When, when you see a Larry Cohen movie, always the first card – in the end title, it says a Larry Cohen film. And that, and I've said this before, it's worth saying again, it's earned. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, go, when you go to a movie today and it says a so-and-so film, mm-hmm. now that guy was the director. He wasn't the producer most of the time, not the writer. And if, if the stories I hear of contemporary guys are true, these guys don't have any idea what to do with a camera. Maybe they know how to talk to actors. Right. But Larry was an auteur filmmaker in the very truest sense, much the way Quentin Tarantino is. Mm, yes. You know, Larry yes, was, a, was an auteur filmmaker for about three decades. And then we hadn't had really one quite like Larry. And then Tarantino came along. And I think it's, it's guys who write who direct their material. Because it's the purest example of what that filmmaker had on their mind. Now, now, Larry's made some great movies, all of which are interesting, but they're not always all good. Or, in the case of the stuff, which when I was making King Cohen, most of the fans I talked to, they said that was their favorite picture. And I'm, I, I don't know that I actually said it to Larry, and I like the stuff, and I think Michael Moriarty's great in it. But boy, you watch the stuff, it feels like a first draft screenplay to me. And I think Larry had a tendency to want to shoot his first drafts, figuring he would make adjustments on the set, which he would often do. Right. But I think when Larry was working for someone as a screenwriter, he was a better screenwriter when he had to go back and do you know, an, a, another draft and maybe another polish. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with a little edit. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to your, your answer about, about what drew me to Larry, I was a fan, basically, and I was doing DVD special features, and I realized that as much as I enjoyed doing them, and I was, I was, I was staying pretty busy doing them, I had to make my own movie. I had to make a movie that was not just uh, sort of a sales tool uh, that might go on a DVD or something like that. You know, because DVD extras are not the same as a feature. Right. You know, DVD extras are fundamentally informational, mm-hmm. whereas a feature, you have to consider a whole lot of different stuff. Pace, rhythm, the story of the filmmaker that you're talking about or the topic that you're talking about. The many, many different considerations. And so I approached Image Entertainment, who I was doing a lot of work for and they said, hey, it sounds great. We love it. Make it. Maybe we'll, we'll acquire it, which is hmm. was my first lesson about, wow, nobody wants to spend any money. Because an acquisition of something, they know, they know if something costs $100, they're 
they're going to give me maybe 25. Right. Well, how am I going to make my money back? Well, especially now with streaming. Streaming has destroyed uh, filmmaking as far as I'm concerned on a, uh, in terms of making money. Yeah, how do they? How do they? I always ask myself, how does something like a streaming service, like a Netflix, Netflix, especially, because they're not like Amazon, who are doing other business with other things. Netflix is Netflix, and they keep putting out original product, but you keep hearing them that they lose money. Well, how? Where do they get the money to make this? Well, it started out with the discs. You know, when they right. were when you would the get box. the red envelope with the DVDs in them. Right. And the reason why Netflix. Well, one, Netflix is, you know, they're doing billions of dollars. They're making, look, nobody's losing money at Netflix. If they say they're losing money, then, you know, whoever the accounting department is needs to be fired immediately. But that's an old Hollywood thing. Nobody ever makes any money in Hollywood. But what happens with Netflix and what's happening with Netflix is a lot of these deals that they used to have that gave them so much product have have concluded and the relationships with those studios have ended for example i was i you know i heard that maybe the biggest reason why people subscribed to netflix streaming in the beginning was because uh people watched friend wanted to watch friends hmm. friends was huge for them the other thing apparently that was really big for them was breaking bad Right. That Breaking Bad kind of got a reputation and wound up uh, being very popular um, on Netflix. And in point of fact, I remember watching the first season of Breaking Bad and hating it. And I said, I don't care. You know, I don't like the world. I don't like the characters. I especially didn't like the 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 sort of gutter quality of the show when it came to drug use, you know, I just don't want to look at that. I mean, I'm not, I don't live in a bubble, but I kind of like to escape a little bit when I watch television. And yeah. of course, all my, all my friends were telling me, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. It's the greatest thing since sliced bagels. You're an idiot. I'm going, I hated the first season. I didn't like the world of the story. So again, coincidentally though, when Better Call Saul aired, I started watching that and I got into it. So anyway, years and years go by, and I'm still being called an idiot by my my friends, not by my enemies, by my friends. <laughs> and then, and one of my producing partners on King Cohen said, you know, Breaking Bad is the greatest show ever. You know, you got to go back and watch. And I and reluctantly, because I hate being told what to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just want to discover things on my own terms. Yeah, me too. But I said to him, I said, look, okay, if it'll shut you up, right. I will watch season two of Breaking Bad, the whole season. If I still hate it, I'm done with it. And he goes, that's fair. And of course, I watched like the first two episodes in season two and I got totally hooked and, and completely realized why that show was so popular. What was but in I, your I, way? What was in the way that you couldn't see at first? Well, I didn't like Walter White. I hated his wife. I hated the fact that he was... Um, Choosing to do something in a world that was so repellent to me. I mean, the older I get, the more about drug use and watching drug use is hard for me to watch. Is it all drug use or specifically? Mostly. I'm not going to say nothing is everything. Right, right. But like, like for example, I'll give you a quick example of that. It's like I don't like prison movies. 
but I love Escape from Alcatraz. I just did the commentary for right, it, so right, right. that's the exception. But I just did, I, I didn't care for the world of, of New Mexico, mm-hmm. even though New Mexico is a beautiful state. Mm-hmm. But that part of New Mexico was not uh, in Albuquerque. But what happened was I stayed with Saul, so in a crazy way, I've watched the entire saga almost chronologically. Yeah, that's very so interesting. I've had the last laugh on everybody. That's kind of cool. That's very cool, actually. You know, it, it kind of just worked out just by being stubborn. Yeah, and I think I, ultimately that's the best way. You can't force people to believe or to like anything that everyone else. And I think it's kind of refreshing every now and then when there is a person who's like, yeah, everybody likes it. I don't. But in your case, you have taste. Like, you know why you don't like or you do like it. And when you're wrong, you can say, okay, I'll give it another chance. Well, sometimes I'm fair like that. Sometimes I'm not. But, you know, <laughs> the other thing is we have so many choices. That's the other thing. To spend your time, I'm, I'm just going, meh. Like, for example, I will probably finish this le- this current season, the, the most recent season of Stranger Things. But, oh, my God, it's like crawling through molasses for me. It was like that uh-huh. for me, too. It, it definitely felt like that for me. What episode are you on? I think I watched five of them. Yeah. And, and it seems to be sort of kicking into what I really wanted it to be. But as a writer, I will, I will, it's, it's one thing to, you know, dump on something, but as a writer, I'll tell you why it wasn't working for me. The whole show used to take place in one town. Yeah. Okay. And that town for better or for worse was Gotham city. Right. Okay. It doesn't look anything like Gotham city, but, but it's here, a you'll know what my analogy is, but and Batman is the character most associated with Gotham City. And then when you take Batman out of Gotham City, it's not as strong. You lose strength. So what they did is they split, they took characters away from the town, yeah. split the narrative, diluted the power, and it's the focus is all over the place. Right. That's the exactly how was, I felt. It was, it was those characters in that place yeah. facing one major situation. Right. And so that bothers me a lot. The other thing that makes it hard to watch is the scenes are just not efficient. They're, they're too long. Every every scene goes on way too long. And it's because these guys are successful and they say, well, this is how we want to do it. Netflix is going, well, sure, guys. Yeah. Whatever you want. Well, And I think we've talked about this. This is one of the things that I've noticed in great movies. It doesn't matter when a movie has been made. If it's efficient, it stands the test of time, just in terms of storytelling and literally the test of time. And the best example I have for that is King Kong, the original King Kong. I mean, that movie's an antique. It was made 90 years ago, give or take. 90 years ago, at the dawn of sound, Wow. When technology was being invented. But God damn it, you watch that movie, it moves like 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 an express train. There's no wasted time. There's no fat. You don't realize that you've watched the whole thing when you're done. Kind of feeling. I, well, that's an interesting point of view. I'm I'm not sure I ever thought of it that way, but and I'm not disagreeing with you. But the thing is, it's good storytelling told well and told efficiently. Good storytelling, and this is where Larry sort of get it, pulling it back to Larry. Yeah, thank you. Larry is mostly successful is 
he tells the story in a way that makes you almost want more. When the audience wants more of anything, you, you've pretty much done a good job. Right. That's a so good way to put it. anyway, but the whole thing with Larry, getting back to that sort of original question from four days ago, um, <laughs> he was also an interesting character to me. I had heard a lot of his commentary tracks and I said, this guy's interesting. Now, when I decided to do it, I knew the work was good. I knew the work was idiosyncratic. I knew his work was not like anybody else's. What I did know was Larry also has the soul of a performer. So that made him very entertaining. Mm. And so at the, at the end of the day, um, I was just very lucky that I picked the Larry Cohen to make a movie about because, um, and this should happen to everybody. He was just a great character who, and I think we talked about this on the last podcast, you know, fans, of course, are going to be interested, but we had screenings and, you know, the festivals, and then we also had some other screenings here in California, and guys would show up who knew who Larry was, and they were fans to one degree or another. But they would be with their wives or girlfriends who didn't know anything about Larry. And I was amazed at how many of them said, this guy's really interesting. This guy's great. And so I realized I think that was the trick. That he had such an imagination. Like, it's incredible. And he's colorful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> He's yeah. just colorful. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a, a couple of women said to me, yeah, I got to see more of his movies and the thought balloon over my head. <laughs> eh, I'm not entirely sure you're going to like all of his movies, but, you know, <laughs> but that's the job. That's the right. job of a filmmaker who does this kind of work. You want to get people interested right. in watching more of the, the material. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's true with any uh, creative discipline, I think. Yeah. No, he's you're absolutely right. He is a very interesting character and I liked the uh the one thing that I liked while watching the documentary so far. I haven't finished it completely yet, but um I liked that he was a maverick. That he the 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 purity of those scenes where in um oh, I forget the name of the movie. Not Harlem Godfather. Uh Black, well, Caesar. Black Caesar. Black Caesar. Yes. Where he kills him or he shoots him. And he's stumbling on the street and nobody knows that a movie is being filmed. So all of the reaction of the New York City streets of that time is as authentic and real as you could possibly get. And people could look at it and be like, oh, that's people would help. That's not real. That is real. That's exactly what would have happened. And I'm like, that and is. As, and as a guy who lived there, I can, I can basically confirm that. Yeah. You know. Most New Yorkers, I don't want to be involved. I haven't heard anything. I didn't see anything. Yeah. But there's one guy who looks at Fred Williamson as he's staggering up Broadway. And I don't know if he saw the camera or he recognized Fred Williamson. I wasn't quite sure. Uh, but a lot of great movies are made using um, unpaid extras is what I was searching for. Right. There's a great, great movie called The Naked City, which was made in 1948. Now, if you watched it today, it would have, it would seem so familiar, but it was the movie that kind of invented the New York cop picture. Okay. Now, no Naked City, you, you know, no Madigan. No Naked City, well, no Naked City TV series. It was a Naked City TV series in the late 50s, early 60s. But no Kojak, mm -hmm. you know. No French connection. I mean, in, in a sense, 
Naked City was the literally the godfather to all these movies. Shot entirely on location, I think, except for the police station. And the climax, which is 70 plus years old now, 75 years old, is still as exciting, as vital um, as anything you would see today. And it's all real. Right. Uh, the, the climax takes place on a, on a uh, well-known New York location. I'll just say that. But there are a number of scenes where there's a detective chasing the bad guy in lower Manhattan. And what they did is they had that actor just going through the street, those actors going through the streets, and they had a truck with kind of a one-way window on it, you know, one-way mirror type thing. And so all of those extras in those scenes were not hired. Hmm. Those are real New Yorkers who just happen to notice what's going on in the street near them. And it is still potent cinematic stuff. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. And then even in the airport scene where they're having that fight on the, the belt, the conveyor belt, I can't imagine if I saw something like that at an airport today, it would be absolute mayhem. Well, one, you can never do it. No. Two, there was a gun, there were guns involved. Right. And Larry just stole it. Yeah. You know, we talk about it in the film that Larry just decides to go in there, have the fight, roll around and then go up the ramp. And then, you know, he doesn't actually fire a gun up there. It's basically, he takes the pistol and I think he kind of jerks it like, like right. it's got a kick, but it's mostly just the sound effect because it, he didn't shoot any blanks. Right. But it was a real gun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Larry, Larry broke a lot of laws that day. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But that piece of cinema that you get is all part of the, like you said before, the true auteur of it. Like, this is going to be real, as, as real as we can, can make it. So I don't know if I asked you this last time, because clearly your memory is magnificent. But Man, who would you say it's is It's not the, what it used to be, but I'm still doing okay. You're doing okay. Who would you say was the, the Larry Cohen of comics? Oh, that's boy, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I'm gonna well, I, I I think it's maybe there's a decade factor. Right. I think Will Eisner in his mm. time was the, was Larry was the Larry Cohen of, of comics. Of course. Because he was a hyphenate. Um and I think I think Frank Miller in the more modern era because Frank, because because of the success of Daredevil, when he started working over at DC, and even when he was working at Marvel, um, people knew that he was special and he had a real voice of his own. And, you know, when you look at Frank's stuff, even before he really was controlling it, Frank's Daredevil stuff was much different than anything else that was being done. Totally. And then you see, you see the Dark Knight, and the Dark Knight just represents everything that is Frank. Uh, Ronan too. Ronan as well. There hasn't been a Ronan too. Has, has he announced a Ronan too? I can't remember. I'm not sure. Uh, but but Ronan as well. I mean, all of that really goes through Frank's filters as a creator. The way everything went through Larry. You know, I was asked this interesting question. Um, and I had never considered this. I mean, it was it's sort of so obvious, but somebody said, what do you think is the connecting tissue in Larry's work? 
I mean, I think it was worded a little differently, but basically, you know, what, what do you think? I think what, what is the thing that runs through all of Larry's movies? And I hadn't ever considered that. And then I realized, well, I said, Larry's a social critic. Larry looks at something that kind of annoys him, perhaps politically or economically or socially, uh, pop culturally, and then finds a way to do a genre spin on it. Mm. I mean, killer yogurt? You know, Larry was taking on Madison Avenue, and then you look at God Told Me To, it's like having God as a villain. You know, I'm, I'm sure that Larry, I, Larry, I think, was born and raised Jewish, but I think he was certainly an agnostic, if not an atheist. Mm. And because you have to be if you're going to make God the bad guy. So... But it's alive, you know, there, there, are th- there are things about babies that are born with birth defects. Back at the time, I think that was an issue for some reason, might, might have dealt with chemical dumping and stuff like that. And so that's kind of where Larry got that idea. And, and one of the things that Larry is, is great at is not telling you stuff. Mm. He doesn't explain everything. He, you know, he says... This is the situation. This is what's going on. You figure it out. Is that a lost art form, do you think? Do you think now there's too much explaining? I think there are a lot of very smart people who think the audiences audiences are stupid. Ah, that's a good one. I mean, you watch It's Alive, you go, well, I'm not entirely sure how this woman was born with this killer baby. Larry said, well, because that woman probably, you know, was exposed to some form of pollution that, you know, mutated her kid, but he wasn't concerned with the exposition. Larry's never really concerned with the exposition, whereas a lot of people feel, especially in television, especially since our society was, was this, the nature of storytelling kind of grew up through television. That's why TV, a lot of old TV shows, even good TV shows are kind of boring because there's just so much exposition. Oh well, this happened because of this and that, and then it, it kind of like old and, comics. And the thing, yeah. Well, I got to tell you, so talking about comics too. It, I'm a big fan of '60s comics and and '60s comic art. And if you go on Facebook, a lot of that stuff gets posted. I am astonished. <laughs> I am astonished at the amount of writing in those balloons. And then every once in a while, I'm stupid and I read some of it, and then I get double astonished because the writing's not very good. (laughs) You know, one of the things that makes Frank Miller Frank Miller is his voice is his voice. Uh, Nobody makes Frank Miller comics like Frank Miller. They don't sound like Frank Miller. They don't look like Frank Miller's comics, and um, and he does not overly write. He does not overwrite them. That, that overwriting and explaining is a disease that many comic book writers had. And the good ones and the bad ones. Yeah. You know, was, Stan, was nobody was as good a writer as Stan at Marvel in the beginning. Stan just tapped into this, this zeitgeist, which he never tapped into afterwards. So, sorry to but, interrupt but, you. But just to finish the point, there's just, there's, you know, there's a lot of bullshit in comic book writing that's unnecessary. Like, I... Writers have to feel they tell the readers what the character is thinking. Writers feel like they have to have the character explain everything. 
You don't see that in writing today. Today's writing is much more efficient. Yeah. No, you, you, that's true. You could get through a comic book real quick these days sometimes. But getting back to Stan Lee, there's always that controversy that people say he didn't even write anything. I feel like he did because I do feel Stan I know Lee, he did. So, I, I, so I know. I'd like I, to I hear don't from you. I think he wrote as much as he took credit for, but he did. Okay, so give us the goods on that, because you were you were in those rooms. So what is it that that people have mistaken about Stan? Well, I've read a couple of the biographies about Stan and Marvel, and they're fascinating to read. But you know, here's the thing: Stan, along with Jack and Steve Ditko and some of the other guys, figured out a way to create a new line of comics and create it pretty quickly. Um, even if Stan did not plot a lot of those stories, he helped formulate those stories and he steered a lot of those guys, but he also wrote the dialogue and then he also made it very Marvel. Now, I'm on Jack Kirby's side as my, you know, for the most part, but if there was no Stan Lee, Jack would not have been as good as he was. I, you know, I think I may have mentioned this to you in our last interview because I say it a lot. Stan Lee was Enrico Fermi, and Jack and Jack Kirby was nuclear nuclear power. Hmm. Enrico Fermi learned how to sort of steer that. And when you look at Jack's DC work, I don't know about you. I didn't know what the hell was going on. When I don't. I, 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 I don't think anybody does. Yeah, I think. I think people want to like them because they're just nutty ideas, but they weren't entertaining comics. And Stan knew Stan knew how to make comics entertaining. He had some idea about how to sell the idea of Marvel, a Marvel story versus a DC story. I mean, at some point, I think Stan may have looked at what Julie Schwartz was doing at DC. Julie was one of the major editors over there, along with Mort Weisinger. And... I always found things like Superman and a lot of the science fiction stuff that came out of those two offices. As a kid, as a little kid, I found it boring. You know, it was, you know, Julie came from science fiction and pulps. And so he wants all the pieces to fit, you know, and he says, not only do I want the, the pieces to fit, I want to make sure you know how the pieces fit. Well, if Larry Cohen were here, we'd say, who gives a shit about the pieces? Is it entertaining? Is, hmm. it, is it a good story? Is it a good idea? Don't bore me. Right. Whenever I would talk to Larry, he'd watch after he'd watch them, he says, you go, oh, it's so boring. So much dialogue. <laughs> and, and, and this is Larry talking about contemporary television and, and stuff like that. Right. And I think old comics suffer from that tremendously. Now, there's a zeitgeist that old comics have that comics don't have today. Yeah. And and I think the zeitgeist, especially at Marvel, was born out of a certain amount of creative chaos. You know, Marvel didn't have the money DC had. Marvel didn't have the staff DC had. Marvel was in, in a really, in a weird kind of way, almost a mom and pop organization in the 60s. Right. Whereas DC was much more buttoned down. Right. They were always the corporate. They were part yeah, of something that yeah. had the money behind it. And they, Marvel, I guess, was the original image of a, the, the creators that could, the creators that were just working that hard to get, get something that they wanted out there. 
And here's the other thing. And, and, and again, I guess I'm going to keep saying this. Say it. I think we talked about this last time. One of the things about the guys who were, especially at Marvel, who were t- churning out an ungodly amount of work. As a guy who ate comics for 20 plus years, I know what a day is like. Yeah. You know, and on a good day, I was doing two pages a day. But not every day was good. Well, you look at guys like Kirby and Buscema and even Ditko because he inked his own stuff. And then guys like Heck and then guys like Dick Ayers and then all the inkers that worked over there. These guys are grinding out a tremendous amount of work. But the thing you have to remember is these guys, for the most part, all had wives and kids. Yeah. They were greatest generation people. They, They wanted to make a living have families. I don't know if many of the guys who worked in comics were veterans. I know Sam Glansman was. Jack and was, right? Very, very nice guy, by the way. I like Sam a lot. But, you know, he cranked out a ton of stuff. Joe Kubert, before he became an editor and an, edu- an, an editor and then an educator. Right. <laughs> Joe cranked that stuff out. Because yeah. Joe had a lot of kids. I don't know how many kids he had, but he had a lot of kids. And the thing, the thing about comics, and, and I don't think this is talked about enough, is the reason why people did comics as a way to make a living doing essentially commercial art in the 60s, especially, was comics didn't pay the best, mm. but they paid the fastest. Mm. DC paid literally, when I started working there, twice a week. You put in a voucher on Monday, you had a check Wednesday. You put in a check a voucher Wednesday, you had a check on Friday. And a lot of editors would just voucher the work right away. And then when you brought the work in, Julie Schwartz was famous for this. He'd open the drawer, pull out a check, you got paid on delivery. Well, if you were a commercial artist working in illustration or advertising, probably the fastest you got paid was 30 days. Yeah. That changes so things. if you had a wife and kids and stuff like that and you were thinking about college and you had the facility to really grind out the work, the thing about comics also was if you had a happy editor, that editor would keep you busy. That was always the good thing about comics was that you didn't live the life of a freelancer. It was almost like you had a guarantee. And then as the years went by, I remember when DC was trying to keep their creators, they, they, they gave contracts. You know, when I was doing, I think they gave me a contract in general and that gave me health, that gave me health insurance. But also if you sign a contract and for example, you did 12 issues of something and you didn't miss an issue, you'd get a, you'd get a bonus where you get like a free issue worth of money just as a an incentive but then they also had the royalties and stuff like that and what happened was in the 80s especially um, because it was so competitive that the companies realized they had to start making deals used to be just the promise of continuous work as a freelancer uh, and and quick payment um, was enough and in fact, I don't know if you remember in the '60s. Pardon me, I got a I got a text. I just got a check. No problem. Friend of mine's in the hospital. That's why. No worries. Okay, it's not about that. Anyway, um, where was I? You were talking about the '80s. 
I was talking about the eighties, but I was going to go back oh, to back the to the sixties. If I if I well, you know, yeah. if you work for a certain editor, the the unwritten law was especially was true with I think Mort Weisinger and Robert Kaniger that if you work for me and you make me happy, you'll never have to worry about having work. And so when guys like Jack Abel and Gene Colan and Mike Esposito, Frank Giacoya, you know, a number of these guys who were working at Marvel were working under pseudonyms because mm. they didn't want their editors at <laughs> DC to know that they were getting work elsewhere. They were afraid that they Is were. Is that where a lot work. of the pseudonyms came from? Because I've noticed that there were certain writers and artists who would have different names. Was it because of that? I think the writers were always the writers, but it was mostly the pencilers and the anchors. Mm. That, I mean, I think even Gil Kane had a pseudonym for, I think, one issue of something. I think it was Scott Edwards or something like that. But Mike Esposito was Mickey DeMio, Jack Abel was uh, Gary Michaels. Gene Colan was Adam Austin. Um, I know that when Johnny Craig was working for Warren um, on Creepy and Eerie, he used the pseudonym Jay Tacey. And because I think Johnny Craig was doing actual commercial work and he didn't want his commercial client to know that he was occasionally moonlighting doing comics. So then it kind of got to the point where nobody gave a shit. Right. You know. That time that you said was so competitive and they were starting to do deals, do you find that that was, for me as a fan, I haven't read a ton of 60s stuff just because the DC stuff would bore me and the Marvel stuff, like you said, overwritten. Like I, it's, it's a lot of that extra explanation, but I do have them to uh, you know, be aware of the artwork and to appreciate things that Steve Ditko was doing with a Doctor Strange and stuff like that. But the 80s, when Jim Shooter was the editor at Marvel, it just seemed like all the trains were running on time and there wasn't really a bad book to pick up. Do you think it was because of competition? I, I, I don't know if, I, if, I, if I'm qualified to answer that. I will say a couple of things, though. Uh, when Jim started to run Marvel... He was the first new editor-in-chief who was really, I think, had the goods to be an editor-in-chief. He knew how to write. Right. He had been in the trenches. Okay. He'd been a freelancer. And so Jim was always very much a grown-up. Mm. Now, a lot of people have a lot of not nice things to say about Jim, right? right? I have mixed emotions, and I'll explain that in, in, a, in a minute. But Jim was qualified temperamentally and in terms of his experience to be an editor-in-chief. When Marv and Len and I, I think Jerry Conway might have been an editor-in-chief for yeah. 20 minutes. These guys don't, didn't have the temperament. I think the ego – listen, if somebody says we want you to be the boss, there's a certain ego boost and I think money came with it. But Jim showed up every day, wore, wore a jacket and tie. He also, and this is one of Jim's, people don't talk about the good things Jim did. Because Jim knew a freelancer who could make a living would be a dedicated freelancer. And so he had also been a freelancer and he knew that you had to make a living. So right. one of the things that was great about Jim, and, and I'll, this is from personal experience, or one day when I was dropping something off, 
I'd always go and say, hey, I mean, Jim and I, were, we socialized and we played cards on Fridays and we you, there, during the warm months, there would be a pickup game, a volleyball pickup game in Central Park and he would be there. So I knew Jim socially. But I said to, you know, to Jim, I walked in and said, hey, how are you doing? And he goes, how are you doing? I said, no, I'm OK. I could use a raise. And he said, what are you getting paid? And I don't remember exactly what I was getting paid, but. He said, okay, you get a $5 page raise. Now, five bucks a page might not sound like much, but remember, we're talking about 40 years ago. And those extra five times 20 pages, uh, 20 page stories, it would add up. Right. And what was great about Jim was he was one stop shopping. If you had something that there was a question about, you could walk into his office and you would get an answer. Right. Yeah, you know, good news, good, good or bad. At least you knew where you stood when you walked out of his office. Now, in many other ways, Jim was very difficult to work for. Jim had a tremendous ego. Um, he loved what Luke McDonald and I were doing on Iron Man in the '80s, and then one day decided he had to destroy it because he had nothing to do with it. He couldn't fire Denny O'Neill because Denny was on staff as an editor. They fired me first. I don't know because I did my job. I, I was really puzzled, and my editor couldn't really say anything. Um, I was really deeply puzzled by that whole thing, and so I think then I next I think the next month or two they fired Luke McDonald, and you know Jim used to have this system where he would read a book. They would get these things called make readies, where they would it would be a first printing of the pages and folded together, kind of in in, in comic form without covers. And Jim would read all the make readies and then he'd give them back to the editors with a star rating. And I remember there are a couple of issues of Iron Man. We got five stars. Hmm. You know, so Jim liked what we were doing. And as the saying goes, there were, there, a bad place to be with Jim is at the head of the pack or at the tail end of the pack. And I think we were comfortably in the middle, but because of the whole alcohol, uh, alcoholic storyline with Tony Stark – that book was getting some ink, I think, mm. outside of comics. Mm. That the whole idea of having somebody, you know, who had everything destroying himself with alcohol was like a pretty big deal. Right. And so then the spotlight kind of got turned on us, and then Jim had nothing to do with it. He had no influence over the stories or anything. So he had to destroy it. So that was, that was the bad part of Jim. And I know he was legendarily tough to work for, but I will give him one other compliment, is that Jim was born to be a comic book executive. He wanted that job. Some guys get it, but they're not good at it. But he wanted it, and he was good at it. And I know he was very dedicated. He was like the first guy in the office in the morning, and he was the last guy at the end of the day. And I also remember that when it came to rewarding extra effort, he would, he would make that happen. For example... Bob Layton called me up one one summer night. I was at one of my studios, and he said, "Steve, I'm really in trouble with one of these Hercules. I think it was a Hercules miniseries or something like that. I I don't remember." And he said, "We're just trying to get it inked. Can you can you possibly help?" And I was kind of done. I think it was about seven seven thirty at night, and my old studio had didn't have air conditioning. It was a hot summer night. And I said, "Yeah, what do you what do you need?" He said, "Can we're just we're just over at Marvel doing an all nighter in the bullpen, and anything you can do will be of value." So Shooter was supervising it, 
And I, I called up my wife, my then wife, and, and said, I'm not coming home. I'm going to be at Marvel doing an all-nighter. And she was cool with that. And so I sat in the bullpen with about four or five other guys, just ink, literally getting lines inked. And what Jim did was, I think he gave me, he said, how many pages do you think you worked on? I said, I don't know, two or three. And he gave me my page rate for the two or three. And I think he gave me just a helping Marvel bonus, which was probably like a hundred bucks. So it was a, you know, he paid, he and again, paid for the effort. Back then, and the, that a hundred bucks yeah. was a lot. No, it was a lot. Now I, it, it kind of wrecked me, you know, I had to sleep through, through my whole sleeping schedule off. But, uh, one thing I learned, the older you got, the tougher it was to do all nighters. <laughs> and, but I was in my twenties, I think my late twenties and, but he rewarded it. And, you know, I don't know that they would have done that at DC, <laughs> but G- that was all Jim. Jim made that happen. Also, the other thing, when he came in, he said to everybody, uh, I know you guys have been here all night. Can I, go, can I get you breakfast? So I have, I have some positive things to say about Jim and then I'm sure you could find a half a dozen people who could say a half a dozen unpositive things about you. Well, I think that's the fair thing of, of the story that you shared is that it's objective. Like you're honest about all of it in your experience and, and you can't ask for more than that. Um, you're currently working in production on the Wings Hauser documentary. I am. How is that going along for you? Slowly. Um Mostly because, of, as I as I talked to you earlier about, uh, you know, COVID has just sort of made everything move a bit more in slow motion. Right. And, um, you know, we have hours with wings. I've been working on that stuff. And um, like Larry Cohen, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. That's cool. And then we, we are, you know, we've, inter- we've talked to, I don't know, seems like about a dozen other people, but there's still like about a dozen people I want to talk to. You know, we're trying to get people that, that Wings had worked with at different facets of his career. Right. You know, and then sometimes people turn you down. I mean, you know, uh, one of his directors turned us down recently. Um, one of his female co-stars turned us down, unless we were going to pay. Mm. And, you know, that's a slippery slope. Because even if you pay them, that doesn't mean they're going to be worth it. Yeah. That's number one. And that doesn't mean they're not going to be difficult. Right. Right. You know, you have, I, I find the best interview subjects are people who want to do it. Right. I mean, I talked to uh, Wings' co-star Gary Swanson. Uh, they co-starred in Vice Squad together, the movie that really, you know, where Wings exploded onto the cinema screen in kind of a great way. Uh, and Gary was the guy who played the good cop. And Gary was the nicest, warmest, most enthusiastic. You know, I think I talked to him for an hour and a half, and ironically, I'll probably wind up using maybe two minutes hmm. of that hour and a half. That's the way it always works. That's how it is, sure. You know, now what I try to do is when I interview somebody, I really don't go in with more than 10 questions. You know, an interview doesn't have to be more than 10 minutes. Uh, I, I, not 10 minutes, about a half an hour, and, and maybe I can get a couple of minutes of, of, of good stuff, which I might drop in throughout the doc. But right. 
the other trick is that you know casting a documentary is like casting a movie. You want to have the best, you know, best actors, best characters, best performers, and then sometimes you can talk to somebody and they don't give you hardly anything. Yeah. One of my favorite interviews and one of my favorite experiences was when I met Robert Forster when we were doing King Cohen. Nicest guy in the world, sweet-natured, easygoing, and he was not the greatest of interviews. Um, you know, he said, well, you're just looking for nuggets, right? Well, yeah, but I'm looking for complete thoughts. I'm look, you know, and, and so I, because I had so much admiration for him and so much respect, I'm a huge, I've always been a fan of his. And when you meet him and you see how nice a guy is, then you become a bigger fan. Uh, I did everything I could to sort of design his quotes to make him look intelligent and and knowing. And and when you see him in the movie, he's the right guy at the right moment. Um, that's the other thing about the editing process is that you know you, you want to get the information, you want it to be articulate, and you also want to make everybody look good. Right. Yeah. It. I. It's. I mean, we're 56 minutes in right now. I don't know how you're doing for time. I could keep going if you can. I got a little. I got a bit more time. If you have some other questions and stuff like that, you know me. Wind me up. I just I can talk forever. That you'd be a great interview for a documentary being shot. And speaking of ones related to the subject matter of comic books, is True Believers still on the go? Is that still something you're going to make? True Believers is something I want to do. I'm I'm getting a little panicky because guys are dying. I was going to ask about that. And I'm getting panicky just in general because they're contemporaries. Right. Um, but, you know, it's all about getting – about financing. The Wings documentary came came out of COVID. Did I explain to you how it happened? No, just that you were going to work on it the last time Okay, well, just a, a, a quick a quick, yeah. a quick story about how things evolve. One of my friends who's a writer-producer uh, – is part of sort of a movie night group that that we have like every month or so. And just before COVID, we screened Vice Squad because he had never seen it. I said, you never seen Vice Squad? Vice Squad's, you know, and Vice Squad is one of the great gutter classics, you know. And and of course, it was the movie where Wings makes his very impressive debut. And so he had never seen it. He says, this guy, I don't even think he knew who Wings Hauser was, really. He says, oh, man, this guy's so great in this. We should watch more of these. So what happened was COVID hit. And we had sort of a movie version of a book club. We would assign a movie to the group or a couple of hours of television. And every Friday night, we would get together and do a Zoom call and we would talk about the movie. That's great. Through the, fil- through the filter of wings, but we would talk about the movie. And we saw the good, we saw the bad, we saw the god-awful. And, but we were used to watching wings every week. And after about a year, the first year of COVID, because this thing got started right at the beginning of COVID and lockdown and everything. My friend's wife, who used to be in casting, said, you know, it's ridiculous that Wingshauser doesn't know about this. And so she knew someone who was still casting. And we got word to Wings's manager. And so he called us up. He's not he's not as technologically savvy mm-hmm. as most people. And I you know, I know how it is. I, I 
I, I know enough to get by. Maybe I know more than that, but I, I don't think of myself as, as, as knowledgeable. But anyway, so he can't he, he can't zoom. He doesn't have to do the zoom or or uh, or a Skype. But so we called us. Mm-hmm. He called one of my friends, and then he you know he put wings on the speaker and put it next to his microphone so we could all hear it. And one, he thought we were all crazy, but in a good way. And two, we found out pretty quickly he was an interesting guy. He had great recall. His stories were great. I mean. You know, he's he's had highs, he's had lows. You know, he had to deal with alcohol, he had to deal with divorces. You know, I mean, this guy, this guy led a pretty colorful life. Right. And so, at the end of that call, my part, my producing partner Matt Verboy says, "Is there a movie in this guy?" And I said, "I'm leaning towards yes, but I want to spend a little more time with him." So we arrange for a meeting at the Manhattan Beach studio again during COVID. And there were all these protocols. We had to go get checked and everything, and we had the meeting outdoors, you know, because the whole thing is that the mindset was if you were outdoors, it would be tougher to get the COVID. Right. And and then he regaled us for like another hour or so, and we went away, and we decided we were going to have something to eat. Um, again, outdoors. I've done more alfresco dining in the last few years than I did in my whole life. Hmm. And... We said, I think there's there's a movie in this guy, and he said something to it to us. You know, he said, "I'm just a working class actor, but I love to work and I love to act." And I said, "Okay, working class actor is the name of the movie." And I think that his story has sufficient ups and downs, but also could be kind of a almost like a kind of a master class about acting, not about how to be a great actor, but how to be an actor. Right. And how to think about being an actor and how to think about who you are as mm. an actor. And that's kind of what the movie's the movie is right now. I haven't done any major editing yet because we're still hunting and gathering stuff. Right. But I think we're going to get start editing relatively soon um, because I think I could get started even though I don't feel like I have all the interviews I want yet. So it's, it's really, as I've talked about before when it comes to doing a documentary is you just try and get as much stuff as you can. Right. You just hunt and gather and just get all of this stuff and it just adds up to be hours and hours and hours. And then I think visually here I start with like this much, I'm beyond the frame, and then i got to pull it all down to that much. Right. You know, Larry said to me, he says, why did you do it as a miniseries? You got so much stuff. <laughs> I, I, th- I think we had that at the end of the movie, actually. Um, and But Larry always thought that his life was should have been a miniseries. And I said, you know, Larry, <laughs> the trick here is to keep them w- wanting more than wanting less. True, yeah. You know, and so we're kind of in the middle of the, the maelstrom of that process right now, getting things figured out, trying to, you know, see if it's worth traveling for some interviews some are some aren't um but it's an interesting process yeah and um i enjoy doing it hopefully i can keep doing it i've got i've got a number of other ideas um and the 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 trick is always you know money i mean everything about the film business is money 
Right. There's a reason why people, you know, Netflix can, you know, have the have the pick of the litter in terms of creative people because they have money. Right. It all comes down to that. You, you sure. do a thing from you do a thing for Netflix or even Amazon most of the time. They can write the check. Yeah. That's what it's it really a big deal. Out. Yeah, production cost is a real thing. Like it's it's great to make stuff, but you also got to weigh the the cost of what you're building. Um, I really hope you do get to make True Believers because there's a lot of us fans. For for me personally, the generation, your generation of comic book writers and editors and artists and all those things and the guys who followed that not far after, that's the my favorite stuff. Even though well, some of it's overwritten at times, I also remember they were writing to kids. So when I read those, it, it brings me back to being that kid again where they are explaining things maybe more than they need to, but you're learning as you're right. reading it. Whereas now that's maybe gone because they're like, all of these guys have been reading comics since they were eight. You don't have to do this. And sometimes you're like, well, it was kind of nice when they would explain the science behind it, even though if it was wonky. I, I, you were well, about to say something. You know, when I, I, I echo your sentiment, I tend to forget sometimes that I was a kid when I read when I read those comics, and comics was a medium that was designed for kids. Yeah, you know, it, it, there was a thinking not in the editorial offices, certainly at DC, but the sort of management. You know, says the kids love this, and they were thinking that they were writing for kids, and it really wasn't until the late '60s when all of a sudden college kids started reading comics and then the, 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 it expanded, the readership kind of expanded in a sense and it wasn't just for kids anymore. And now I'm assuming everybody who work, who writes comics is just trying to write movies on paper yeah. with, a with a certain amount of maturity because what kid can afford a comic these days? What's the average price of a comic? I don't even know. It's about three bucks. No, no. It's um, I buy mostly collected things, so I haven't bought single issues for a bit for the reason that they up the price to six dollars. So, so the the pamphlet, as it's referred to, is now six dollars. I think four ninety nine and five ninety nine are the t are the the prices now on these books. Um, it, you don't get much time with them. It's really, those books are one to give them money to, to let them know that you want to trade a paperback or a collected edition of some sort, or it's for people to make sure they have that issue that will be able to be flipped. I'm not sure anymore what the, the thrill is of reading a monthly comic. It's especially for well, Marvel. You're invested in the writing and you're invested in the artwork. I think that always is the fundamental. Absolutely. But they collect things now. You know that you'll be able to read the whole story. Like it's almost as though six issues is as much story as y your generation would give us in one or two. Like I read the, um, I'm just going through the Mark DeMatteis uh, Captain America run with Mike Zek. Forty years old, but I feel like it's aged well. The artwork is great. The writing, he sometimes overwrites, but sometimes it's necessary. And I prefer it than some of those. And I feel like I've read, you know, 20 issues of that. And it's taken me a while to get through. But I've really gotten to know these characters. And I've been invested in Cap's girlfriend and in his friend Arnie Roth. And I'm really getting to know the Falcon. 
Whereas today, I need to read the, the book for maybe five years to get that whole experience. Right. So there's a density that you appreciate that we don't quite have in comics today. And I, I put myself, I said we, I, I don't work in comics. Um, it's been a long time since I stopped working in comics. But, you know, also you're talking about reading stuff by people who are talented. I mean, you know, Dematis was always a good writer. Um, and Mike Zeck, I think, is maybe somewhat underappreciated. I think so. As an artist. I think so. I think Mike could draw. Mike was also a very good storyteller, as yeah. I recall. Yeah. Um, he was – there are a lot of guys – and I got to now. I got to name a couple of them. Please, uh, well, I have Jerry a list Ward, of names. Jerry Wardway is another guy like yes, that. Yes. Guys that could draw artistically, they had good chops, but you know they were good storytellers. That's true. Um, you know, I've always been a John Romita Jr. fan. Yeah. Uh, especially, he does he does two things really well. He does a lot of things really well, but the things that I like is one, he. He uses weather. I was going to say, you feel the weather in his scenes. <laughs> you feel the weather in his stuff. You know, you feel the cold. You feel the dampness, rain. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's amazing how you just introduce the idea of weather into a story, and, and it makes a, a huge difference. And um, But he also, architecturally, he was one of those guys who could, you know, when he drew a street, it didn't look like it was bullshit. Right. It felt like it was a real street. The, the the king of that, you know, is the late and much, much missed Tim Sale. Oh. That Tim Sale sense of place and his sense of architecture. I, I recently, uh, I have a podcast too, it's called True Believers. And we just expanded where people could find it. And we did a, a Cyborus and I did a tribute to Tim. And I said, there, there are a ton of reasons why I like Tim's work. A ton, mm-hmm. but the re- the thing I think I liked the most about his work was one his sense of the room. You know, when you look at a room that something is taking place in, it looks like a real room. It looks like somebody actually works there or lives there. That's hard to do. I remember that in in Superman for All Seasons, the kitchen in in Smallville. I remember where the dog's bowl was. Where he would hang his jacket. You're right. That does he does have that gift. Tim, Tim, I, you know when I think of his, you know, darker stuff, you know, like Daredevil Yellow mm. and some of the Batman stuff. Tim was very clearly influenced by film noir, black and white movies in the '40s and the '50s. Right. And I, I never got to ask Tim this question. I wish I had. I said, Tim, were you a big fan of RKO movies in the '50s? And he probably would have said, why? And I said, well, the thing about RKO, even though they were B studio by the 50s, they were an A studio in the 30s and 40s, but their art department was really good. You would walk into a room and it didn't look like it was built yesterday. It looked like it was built when it was built. The set dressing reflected character. And the best thing I can say about a lot of the art depart, uh, art direction in their movies, you could actually go live in a room that's a set because mm. it, it feels like a place where you live. Right. You know, Columbia was terrible at that. MGM for all of their gaudiness. I never believed any of those, those places that these people lived in. They just looked like great sets. RKO 
had sets that looked like real rooms. And Tim, in his genius, was able to somehow pull that thinking into his work and somehow it kind of came out through his hands in a great way. And, you know, Tim could also light like a cinematographer. And there are so many things that Tim did that were parallel to movies. And the strange thing is that Tim's work was a bit of an acquired taste for me because of the way he draws people. Right. It's very stylized. It's not literal. Yes. But you have to sort of, you know, you it's 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 the difference between cheap drugstore scotch and drinking single malt scotch. Right. It's still alcohol. Yeah. It still gets you drunk, <laughs> but there's character, there's nuance, there's there, there's flavors, there's aromas, flavors, there's there's hints of flavors, uh, all that kind of pretentious scotch talk. <laughs> but but that's Tim. But that's Tim's work. Yeah, you're right. That's a good Tim's way. Tim's work put. has a sophistication. Yeah. That is not completely obvious because yes. of the way he draws figures, which lean towards cartoony. Yeah. The, the, those scenes in the Batman books where Catwoman, um, I don't remember if it was Tim or Frank who got Catwoman to scratch Carmine Falcone's face. The, David Mazzucchelli, of course, was the artist in year one with Frank, but... I don't, but I, those that scene, the way he drew Carmen Falcone's face in those Batman books with Jeff Loeb, though you can really feel the trauma of those scars. I think you're you're right about the nuance. Wow, what a compliment! What a compliment! Yeah, I, I I didn't think I just going from what you said, I never really saw it as clearly as you described it. Because sometimes you you're right, his his um. His art, I remember Jeff Loeb, when he, he looked for an artist for Challengers of the Unknown, he told the story where he wanted someone who could draw ugly. He wanted ugly-looking people in the book, and Tim Sale's art fit what he wanted. So it's not always pleasing to the eye, but you are acquainted with them. Yeah, it, it's, it's again, it's there's a guy from the 60s and the 50s named Jerry Grandinetti. Now, Jerry Grandinetti was probably not terribly famous with most comics fans because he drew war comics primarily for DC. And then he was doing horror stuff or mystery stuff for you know Joe Orlando and, and Murray Boltonoff in the 70s. And of course, Jerry was, was one of the guys that Archie brought over to Warren and 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 Grandinetti did a lot of great jobs in black and white and in wash. And the thing about Grandinetti's style is, it's not realistic, but it's not cartoony per se, and and it has a certain bizarreness of it with it. And all I can say is that Tim sort of became the Jerry Grandinetti of his time, except Tim did work in the superhero milieu, so. Tim got noticed. Grandinetti, I think the only time he ever did any superhero stuff, he may have done some stuff for Tower, I don't really remember, for the Thunder Agents books. But Jerry uh, took over the Spectre from Murphy Anderson, I think, when, when the Spectre was around in the 60s, I think. I think so. And I, I believe think, you. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Jerry inked it. I think Murphy may have inked it. But 
it was really kind of bizarre, but neat bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, of that generation that you were a part of, there's a, a couple of people. I don't know if we could, we're not going to do them all. Maybe we can, you can come back and we could keep having this conversation. But with true believers, one thing I wanted to know is how would you go about now telling the story of that generation? Is it based off of being able to interview your contemporaries or would it, would, would you change how you would go about telling that story? Well, hopefully I can talk to my, my contemporaries that are still around. Yeah. But basically the thing about that, the blue jean generation, as I call them, is that we were a bunch of dreamers and we were all fans. Yeah. We wanted to get in the comics because we loved comics and we wanted to be creators. We didn't do it for the money because there wasn't very much money at the time. Uh, some guys made a good living. I know Marv Wolfman did pretty well once Marv got established more because Marv was fast. Mm. I think Marv wrote four books a month. Yeah. And so I, you know, it's 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 tough to do an art equivalent to that. Yeah. But everybody who got into comics did it because we wanted to. And the other thing that I I I, I really want to emphasize, and this, and we were a threat to the old guys. Yeah. John Romita, who I like personally, I think always looked at us askance like we were trying to take money out of his wallet. <laughs> there were some other guys who looked at it like we were trying to replace them. I never met anybody who didn't who wanted to replace any of those guys. Our dream, our goal, my goal or my dream, if I even had any of that, was I wanted to work next to the Titans, not instead of the Titans. Right. And I think that's why the stuff is good from that era. I mean, not everything in the 70s is gold, but there's the seeds are planted for what becomes the best, I would say, decade or a bit more than that of Marvel and DC. Like it it comes from those creators minds, the people who loved the, the fans that wanted to create for the love of it and work alongside their heroes. Like you said, I don't think any of you guys would have been like, I want John Ramita's job. It's like, no, don't let him leave. No, no, I didn't want to take inking away from Jack Abel or Frank Giacoya. Right. Or even Vinny, who I was never fond of. <laughs> um, but no, I wanted to work next to these guys. And when I worked at Continuity, Neil Adam and Dick Giordano's studio, you know, I was working around these guys who I really admired. And but the other thing about the, 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 the blue jean generation that's really important would be a focus of the doc is this was a really interesting time to live in New York in the in the 70s. Yes. And also uh, pop culturally, yes. it was an interesting time. And, and a lot of the comics were influenced by movies, politics, um, literature, uh, uh, illustration art. You know, the 70s was a great period for illustration art because, especially in New York, it was everywhere. Right. You know, Time Magazine, TV Guide, Newsweek, um, you know, you had Men's men's Adventure Magazine, you had the Sweat Books, you had um, illustration and women's magazines, you had movie posters that were all mostly illustration. There was industrial advertising art that was all over the place, you know, commercial advertising stuff. Art was everywhere. I mean, listen, I would love to be 30 years younger. Hmm. 
but I wouldn't trade my life for anybody because I lived at a time where pop culture was such an important component to life. And all these guys were influenced by books and movies and things beyond comics. Yeah. You know, Denny O'Neill was a guy who read, I mean, I don't know how Denny read so much. I mean, he might have been a speed reader. But Denny read everything, it seemed. Denny went to the movies. You know, guys like, you know, Frank Miller and I, when we were, when we had studios that were five blocks apart, oftentimes on Fridays, we'd go see action movies together. All of this stuff that was available to you as a human being, not just as a fan, but as a human being, all the young guys were taking all of that stuff, all of that influence, and they put it into their system and it would come out through the work. Yeah. And I think there's a difference, too, of that generation and, and their uh, dance with pop culture because it was much more tactile with, with what you did getting to that place to do it it was a much more earned experience where i think it's a little bit lost today where even when you listen to things like music people i expect you that same day it's like it's nine o'clock in the morning i haven't listened to the album yet oh you didn't download it before you'd have to take the effort and go to the theater and buy the album or buy the book and flip through the pages where the convenience of having a book read to you is great but when you've earned that sort of time with that product it i think it, it uh when it comes out of you it's just become a part of you now so when it comes out it comes out in a way that is is through a really different type of filter well and i think the experience of that kind of pop culture was a different thing and you know this when i talk about my commentary tracks about context and the environment you know, I, we did a, a commentary track about a movie called Cross Swords, which was a movie that Richard Lester did. Um, it was based on uh, The Prince and the Pauper, and it had followed Lester's Three and Four Musketeers, which were very, very big uh, and popular movies in the 70s when they came out. And part of it was, part, part of the experience for me was seeing that movie at Radio City Music Hall. Now, Radio City Musical might have some resonance for your viewers, just kind of as something they may have heard of. But Radio City Musical was maybe the greatest venue to see a, a movie and or a show in because it, it had spectacular acoustics. And also it was, it was built in, the, I think, the 30s. It was built when Radio City was built. And it was huge. I remember the first time I we went to Radio City Musical with my parents to see something. And I thought it was like the Grand Canyon. It was it was unbelievably big. The idea, and it was a movie palace. Well, to see a big movie in a movie palace is different than even watching it on an 85-inch TV at home. Right. It's very different. And that's how we saw movies in those days, in New York at least. You'd go to big theaters. It would be a communal experience. But the communal experience went beyond movies. It was television. Right. When Jaws was on the ABC Sunday Night movie, as a movie that everybody had seen, everybody, because it played for six months. <laughs> it premiered the summer. It was still playing in the winter in New York City. Right. I could go see Jaws at, at, a, at some theater in February of 76 if I wanted to. 
But when Jaws was on TV, everybody watched it. Right. There was no home video. There was nothing. And it was what they call a water cooler experience. Right. You, next day you talk about it. Exactly. Or when, when people were reading The Godfather. Right, right, right. When I read The Godfather, I was reading on the subway train going to work or going into, into Manhattan. But you would see plenty of people with those paperbacks reading The Godfather in the subway. Right. Same as Airport. The same as, um, you know, some Alistair MacLean novels, which were very popular. You know, all kinds of stuff. So the, 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 we live in a world now where people back away from the communal experience. They want to be internal. They have their, they have their cave or their bubble or their, or their safe place or yeah. their man cave, all of which is great, all of which I subscribe to. And they go, well, I want to experience it on my own. I don't want to be involved with other people. But the experience of seeing something popular with other people is an experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, Did you watch that uh, that miniseries, uh, uh, The Offer, which is about the making of The Godfather? No, but I want on, to. It was on Paramount Plus. And I don't know if you get that in Canada or not. We do. But it's fantastic. It's mostly accurate because as I was watching it, I was reading this book called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, which <laughs> is the most recent book about the making of The Godfather. And they got most of it right in the miniseries. But it also reminded me when I stood online in the rain in Times Square to go see it at a 10 o'clock show. And they were lined up around the block, rain or shine, to go see The Godfather. Incredible. It was the event of the time. Yeah. we've The closest thing that we've had lately as the event of the time has been Top Gun. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, maybe before that might have been Infinity War that everyone was talking about, but definitely Top Gun. Definitely. Did you Top like Top Gun? Gun? Top Gun in many ways, the, 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 the whole Top Gun impact of today reminds me of the way certain big things would land then yeah. in the 70s and the 80s and even in the 90s. Yeah. But here's the other thing and, and this is just a function of the 21st century no knock on any of your younger viewers is that we like sitting around talking about shit back in the day yeah that's why I like I called it the cave of solitude which is like like you exactly described but I want it to be the place where I talk to people again like that's well Denny O'Neill and I used to eat lunch a lot together yeah when Dick was working at DC and I think I was in the production department and we almost never talked about comics. Hmm. We would talk about books or movies, um, TV. And I think it's because of those lunches that Denny paid me a very nice compliment once. He was talking about hmm. me as being one of the few bat only comic book professionals who actually was in a comic. You know, I was in that famous Neil Adams Joker story, um, it was Joker's Five Way Revenge, I think it was called, and I was one of the guys that Joker kills. <laughs> I was working at Neil's studio one night, and Neil yells at me. He says, "Mitchell," I said, "Yeah." He says, "Don't move." I said, "Why?" And he said, "You're going to be bigger, Melvin. Bigger who?" And so I became this character in this story. And the first time you see me, it's the likeness is pretty good. And then the varying versions, the way Neil drew me, I looked Asian in a couple of, couple of places. It was weird. 
but I was in that character. So Denny was talking about this in an interview, and then he said, he says, Steve's an interesting guy. Pretty simple sentence. It meant the world to me. That, I was going to say. If Denny thought I was interesting, I must have been doing something right. I was going to say, he must have been such an interesting guy, but it, in speaking to you, you are as well, like very easily, because you're well-rounded, you read, you watch movies, you're a, for lack of a better term, you're a geek, you're a nerd, like, like the listeners. Oh, yeah, and I was before, it, before it was, way before it was cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Phil Suling Fourth of July conventions that used to take place in New York. The first comic convention yes. I went to was run by a guy named Phil Suling, who was a teacher who I think also owned a bookstore and sold back issues of comics, but he was a comics fan, but he was making money from comics. And he started this convention in New York, and it was the, I, I think it was called the New York Comic Con or something like that, but it was the Suling Con. Everybody called it the Suling Con, and it was the 4th of July. And I think the first year, I think maybe I was 14 or something like that, yeah, I think it was maybe 14. I remember getting up, because I grew up in northern Queens, which is about an hour outside of Manhattan. And I got up at, like, dawn, it seemed. I, I showered, I had breakfast, I was on the bus. I had to take a bus to get to the subway. Yeah, that's something for New York. And I had to York. transfer on the subway to a different different, a different line. And, um, and I was there, like, at the opening bell. I was there at nine o'clock and I didn't, I, I, I was there all day. And then I would usually get home to my parents' house at 11 at night. My parents were actually pretty cool. That made me very independent. They trusted me. Yeah, that is very cool. And, and for four whole days, I spent pretty much all, all my waking hours at this convention. And, and if you see pictures of it, it's basically two rooms. I think it's one big dealer's room, kind of a middle room where the registration area is, and then there was like a film panel room. That's it. No, no, no Hall H at Comic Con or any of that stuff where people, you know, the, the, these rooms are the size of a stadium. Right. Two rooms at the top of a hotel, and I loved every single second of it. I went to all the panels. Yeah. I looked for back issues of comics. And it was the one place in the world I could be me. Right. And I think the reason it was so popular is that all of the versions of me from the different boroughs and from New Jersey and Connecticut, we could all go to this one place and there was no threat of being insulted for being <laughs> in the comics. Because right. reading comics was not cool when I read comics. Yeah, comics it was is always, the opposite of cool. Comics has always been the comics community has just been a community for misfits, right? That's just always been what it was for. Back in the day, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I would hope that it's still like that today. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but it's always been that place to, hey, if you feel like you don't fit in, this is where you do. That's what I well, love about it's the, it. It was the same thing with Halloween, you know. Halloween and comics were supposed to be kid holidays. Right. And now comics and Halloween have changed. You know, <laughs> comics are now uh, gazillion dollar IP and merchandising. Mm -hmm. And then Halloween is now not a day for kids. It is a month. It is an actual season. Yeah. 
in California where they love to put lights up, people put up Halloween lights for a month. Yeah, you're right. It's an actual season. And so much so now that for movies and television, that's a genre. It's it's a subgenre area. It is a making movies for that season time of year. Yeah. And so it's things have changed. Yeah, for sure. I guess they have. They have for sure. But I, I still being almost forty years old myself, I love talking to guys like you about this stuff. Can we do a part two of this? Because I've got a, a list of stuff about continuity comics that I would. Love I, to talk I to. listen. You know me. Wind me up. I'll talk forever. So uh, we can do a part two sometime soon you let me know when yeah let's 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 arrange it maybe sometime next month we'll put the part two out and we'll get into some of the people that you've worked with at continuity you got guys like walt simonson and the list goes on and on i'd love to hear a lot of of heavyweights walk through those halls huge and and when you go on the wikipedia it doesn't even list everybody it doesn't do it justice so I, i would love to pick your brain about that time because what a what an era to have been making comic or just doing work with those guys, whether it's comic books or commercial art. And then, of course, you know, Neil Adams, no longer with us, uh, rest in peace, but one of the most influential people in the medium, for sure. Yeah, I'll just put a button on that saying that if you're going to have a Mount Rushmore comic, guys, I think most people would debate a couple of them, but I don't think anyone would debate Neil Adams being on that Mount Rushmore. Yeah, that's fair. It was very significant. Yeah, that's very in, in, a, in a ton of ways. That's the thing. It's not just the bibliography of books. It was what he did for the creators and for the artists going forward. So for sure, he deserves that honor. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. I really look oh, forward my great to, pleasure. to talking again. Uh, it's always a, a great fun to be able to talk to you. And talking movies. It makes me feel so guilty for all the movies you mentioned. And I haven't seen so many of them. So I'm going to do some homework. Thank yeah, you. well, here's the good part. You get to see him for the first time. That's true. That's and, true. And, and there's a certain experience when you see any great movie or TV series for the first time. Yeah, right. Uh, I'll, I'll share, and I'll share why I believe that with you. Uh, again, because guys in the comic book business said, have you read First Blood yet? And this is before Stallone, before Rambo. I mean, this is the book came out in the 70s, I think. And I said, no, but they said, oh, you got to read it. It's great. And that's another thing that was great about working in comics at that time. There was a lot of, oh, you got to read it. It's great. And so when the, and you open up the paperback and it said, we envy you the experience of reading this book for the first time, dash the editors. And I never forgot that because that applies in a lot of ways to a lot of things. Now, First Blood is a great book. I mean, I read it, I think, in two nights and it, it just was an absolute grabber. But, again, life in the 21st century is different in that we do things, we can even experience things, but they're not the same experience as they were in in the day, partly because the nature of how people socialize or don't socialize today. True. You know, I, listen, if I had a dollar for every hour, I just sat around with a cup of coffee and cigarettes. I smoked in those days. I don't know. And just sitting around and talking about all this stuff, guys. I mean, I'd, I'd be a zillionaire because the interaction with other like, like-minded like people was always stimulating. And, you know, sometimes a disagreement about something could be way more interesting than an agreement about something. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That must have been a great room to be in. 
Yeah, and it was a sort of specific room or just a room existentially. Right. You know, right. There was no actual room in a sense. There's like, they were all, all the rooms were the room. Okay? Right, right, right. And, um, but anyway, listen, we can, we can pick up where we left off. Yes, that'd be great. Uh, next time we'll figure it out and we'll do it real soon. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope all the best for you. Stay healthy. Hope the Wings Hauser, uh, a documentary you get all the people that you want and we'll talk soon and we'll keep going with this this stuff i love it thank you uh my my great pleasure Eric. We'll thank see you, you everybody time. for listening uh rate and review the show uh be sure to follow and watch um uh, king cohen doc uh, the documentary that steve won awards for it's really really great and stay on the lookout for all the other stuff that you're working on thank you steve thank you